0: All of a sudden when the word COVID-19 coronavirus came up, there was no treatment for inflammation, no treatment for respiratory compromise, no treatment for blood clotting.
1: How is that possible? It's completely absurd. Today I sit down with Dr. Richard Urso, a co-founder of the International Alliance of Physicians and Medical Scientists, which organizes global COVID summit events. He's a drug design and treatment specialist, an ophthalmologist, and former chief of orbital oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Early on in the pandemic, when he saw COVID-19 patients were not getting treated, he started treating them, and has since treated nearly 2,000 people for COVID-19. I'm speaking out because I have to. There is treatment, and people do not have to die.
0: If you get everybody early, we literally can save almost everybody early. This
1: is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Jan Kelly. Dr. Richard Urso, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. It's great to be here.
0: Looking forward to our discussion.
1: I'm going to read you a headline Uh, 17,000 physicians and medical scientists declare COVID national emergency over. You're one of them. Um, So I'm one
0: of the founders. You know, we started back in August of 2021 looking at the pandemic. and seeing it getting out of control in August. And we decided to try to, to band
1: together so we could send a stronger message. And, and just very quickly, who is it that's banding together here?
0: So it was myself, Robert Malone, um, uh, John Littell, Heather Gessling, Brian Tyson, Ryan Cole, and Mark McDonald. Uh, we had several others that were very interested that couldn't make the trip to Puerto Rico. We went down to Puerto Rico to kind of band together to try to figure out a strategy for how we could move forward in the pandemic when we were literally not doing very well with treatment and we were having a lot of difficulty with supply chain, with ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and all the other drugs. We were having troubles with pharmacists. Um, We were having uh, media issues with being branded as not doing the right thing. And clearly for us, it was clearly there's always treatment for every disorder and it was so simple. It was like there's inflammation, there's respiratory demise, there's blood clotting. Of course we have drugs for those things, how could we not? And then we have biologically plausible mechanisms to fight the virus with things like ivermectin and other drugs that if you look back, this is not a willy-nilly thing, this is something that's done because there's a lot of information in PubMed describing how these drugs might be useful. And we wanted to make sure that we had an organization that could, um, that could be difficult to take down. If we could band together, we felt like we could be a stronger voice. And so we ended up forming, now it's 18,000 physicians and scientists, which I love to say is more than the NIH has, the CDC and the FDA. And for the most part, our guys are likely smarter since most of our guys are from MIT and Harvard and Stanford, and a lot of great universities. And the organization's name so we have, uh, it's called the International Alliance of Physicians and Scientists. Uh, we have a subgroup that is most of our organization's meetings called Global COVID Summit.
1: Yeah, I think that's where most people have, have, have heard of the group. So, well, is the emergency over? How can we tell?
0: So if we're looking at it without a political eye, the emergency is over. That COVID has uh, slowed down. Omicron has gone throughout most of the population, particularly uh, all the vaccinated people. Um, it's made a, its way pretty pretty well through. And as, as you might say, in places like England, 90% of the people dying of COVID right now, dying of Omicron, were triple vaccinated people. But it's acted like a vaccine for, for the people who survived. And so the risk of COVID through the general population in the United States is, is very low right now. In all likelihood, we've reached what we would consider to be herd immunity, which of course has a definition that has um, changed recently. So, you know, that's why I think we're in a good place with COVID right now.
1: Okay. Briefly, just tell me, how has the definition changed? I remember looking at this earlier.
0: So herd immunity um, has taken on this new definition of a somebody who wants people to die of COVID by letting people get infected with the disease. It's taken on a definition uh, through the media of someone who doesn't really care about humankind, about somebody who thinks that vaccination um, is uh, is not a way forward. And there was really no reason for that. So herd immunity, in, in a sense, is a way to say that if enough people get sick with an illness... Um, in, in all likelihood, if that illness is a, a virus that's fairly stable, um, like chickenpox, for instance, that population will now uh, have a, ve- a lot of difficulty to propagate the virus through the population because as, as it skips from you to I, you've already had it. So you can't propagate it now because you can't acquire it. You have immunity already. So it kind of ties in with the whole thing of of the fraud of the government of... Um, of saying that natural immunity doesn't matter. And I still heard a famous person in Canada today say, natural immunity only lasts six months, um, which is absurd. So for people who don't know, um, this natural immunity uh, from SARS-CoV-1, 18 years later, uh, those patients still had immunity to SARS-CoV-2. So natural immunity is long, broad, durable, and likely lasts, perhaps lifelong but at least decades but we have 150 studies 151 now studies showing that natural immunity is superior to vaccinated immunity
1: and and herd immunity i mean it's just it's just something that happens when a virus is going through the population and that's it it became this yeah kind of strange pejorative term like you were describing earlier
0: it, exactly it's become a pejorative term rather than just a way to discuss science and say that populations exposed to certain infections will have an inability for that same infection to propagate because so many people already have developed immunity to that
1: measles or any of these viruses that are well known to us. So are you saying that you're not expecting another wave to come of the virus? So that's a good question.
0: There's still a lot of people in the world who haven't had exposure to this virus. Um, Now, the virus is kind of interesting. Um, It's basically mutating around the uh, spike protein because we are uh, seeing the mutations occur in the vaccinated community. There are mutations occurring in the unvaccinated but those mutations are scattered amongst 29 proteins. The spike protein is one of those 29 proteins and particularly the way the body is targeting the neutralization is through the receptor binding domains um, primarily on the spike protein because that's the way it's being vaccinated against. So as you acquire those antibodies, that's the first place you're gonna see mutations occur. So in that population, you are seeing the significant mutations occur that we call Wuhan then Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta. Omicron um, is another animal and we kind of jokingly say somehow the milkman came to visit because it's not coming from Wuhan Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta. It's a different it's a different virus. Um, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole it's not actually my pure expertise but but that's the thing we have to talk about as we go forward is, is there going to be other other um, viruses that we're going to have to deal with? We definitely will. Respiratory viruses are normal. Um, will it be influenza? Will it be some other species? Um, we'll see. I think in general, there's a lot of nuance in this. And in general, some viruses will outcompete others. That's why you've seen the low numbers in influenza right now, because the the coronavirus family is out-competing that whole series of, of, of viruses, even uh, paramyxoviruses. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different respiratory viruses. Of course, influenza being one of the ones everyone knows, but coronavirus family, there's, um, I'm blanking on like two others, but in general, um, they compete with each other for us, the host.
1: Well, and so the reason I'm asking about whether we might expect another wave is that, you know, basically there's a fear that some of the policies, there, there seems to be this approach during the pandemic that, you know, you have something, it doesn't work very well, problem happens again, and you just do that same thing, but you do it harder. That's been kind of a common theme. So there's a lot of people concerned, for example, you know, there were these lockdown policies, they didn't work, but you know, what if another wave comes and suddenly everyone has to wear masks and be locked down again, right?
0: So you're basically looking at the big picture. So you know, in a sense, we we should step away for a second and talk about the big picture. What should we do? Should we lock down healthy people? Absolutely not. It makes no sense. We don't lock down healthy people for respiratory viruses. Should we wash our hands and maybe do a little distancing? If you're unhealthy, you should wash our hands. We should do some distancing. Those are all sensible things. If I am sick, I should distance from you. I shouldn't bring my germs to you. It's a respiratory virus. It's gonna go through the air. Our masks gonna be effective. Not the types of masks that we're seeing here. There's no evidence for that so the, the whole approach has been um, corrupted in a sense by bad science so there's no reason to, to wait for a vaccine when you have treatment that is basically things that are on label and and so we go from locking down healthy people no we shouldn't do that it's been proven that there's 87 regions in the world where they did this and looked at it and they saw no no benefit from lockdowns in terms of deaths um, should we mask people with masks that don't work against respiratory viruses I sometimes say the data's there and I sometimes will say that you can't expect something to work that hasn't worked for other for other viruses when they're exactly the same size so at the time in the beginning I I would have said it's the same size virus and it likely won't work so they went and did the studies the big Danish study and guess what it didn't work so There are cloth masks, um, N95, um, and and surgical masks. I just was wearing a surgical mask a few minutes ago as I got out of surgery. Um, They don't work against viruses. We've always known that. So I have to do a viral lesion on someone next week, and I'm not going to wear that mask because it doesn't work against viruses, and I've known that forever. It's called molluscum contagiosum. It's going to aerosolize into the air, into the OR, So we have some strategies that we do to make sure that we don't acquire that. And it's not a surgical mask, it's not an N95, and it's not a cloth mask. None of those work for this problem. The bottom line is we have lots of data and we have no good quality data saying it works, but yet we were forced to do it. And the best data we have from the Danish study says that it doesn't work. And they came out with a really poorly designed trial from Bangladesh. Uh, I don't know if they're promoting this, but but basically they said there was an 11% difference in groups. But if you look at the study di- design, it's an extremely poor quality uh, study. And so it's, it's not a study that holds up to high scientific rigor. So all the scientific studies that have been done randomized controlled trials have proven it not to be effective except that one, which had very low scientific rigor. So these things are things that are Easy to say that there was no reason to do those things. Should we have treated? Of course, why would we not treat inflammation? If I told you I had inflammation in my body and there's no treatment for it, let's forget about COVID. Would you wonder about that? Would you say, I wonder what's wrong with that doctor? He's not very smart, is he? What if I said, you know, I have respiratory compromise and I said, there's no treatment for respiratory compromise, same thing. That doctor doesn't know what he's talking about. Is there treatment for blood clotting? Nope, there is no longer treatment for blood clotting. All of a sudden when the word COVID-19 coronavirus came up, there was no treatment for inflammation, no treatment for respiratory compromise, no treatment for blood clotting. How is that possible? It's completely absurd. And then if you have things that you can attack a virus with that other people have done the work over the last three or four decades looking at these things, strong biologic plausibility and mechanistically they can maybe make an impact. Why would you not try them when they're safe and relatively low risk. The fact that we've used these drugs forever, all drugs that we use forever we know what they're going to do because we've already used them. And even if you tweak a drug one way a little bit or the other you usually have a pretty good idea of what might happen. And so well, I think I, it
1: was silly not to do it. The bottom line is if there is another wave of some sort of coronavirus we have treatment so
0: no matter what shows up there's treatment each 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 disease has so if i say to you i'm going to cure i cure diabetes you'd say no you haven't done that right but i treat diabetes right right because the sugars go up things happen same thing with hypertension so there is a way to mitigate damage in every disease whether it's covid whether it's cancer, whether it's anything. There's always something that's potentially useful. And that's how we practice medicine. That's the practice of medicine. And so we look for the things that have the most evidence, the most biologic plausibility, and and then we go from there. And it's, it's a progression. And that's how you do drug design, which I've been doing for my whole career. On um, my background, for people who don't know, I've Eleven years in a lab, two in a biochem, nine in a tissue culture lab. I've invented an FDA-approved drug. I've repurposed so many different things for so many different purposes that it's I, I I look for the next pandemic to come, and I'm sure that people like me and myself personally will be able to come up with something that sounds reasonable.
1: So you're giving me a little bit of your background, and you know. You just basically finished surgery before you came to this interview, hence hence your attire today. Um, so you, what do you do these days? So
0: I'm a practicing physician. I have one of the biggest practices in the country uh, of its kind. I'm an ophthalmologist. Um, as I said, I was uh, chief at uh, one of the top um, cancer hospitals in the country at one time. I left to come out in prior practice in 2005, and we built the practice to... Um, it was the biggest practice in the country, but the private equity groups have come in and kind of created some alliances that are bigger than ours. But we've got you know big practice, um, and I was actually just doing surgery um, on a patient uh, right before I came for this interview, which is why I'm dressed like this, um, and it was a
1: reconstructive eyelid procedure. Fascinating. And of course these days you work a lot in, you know, treatment of COVID, frankly. Mm-hmm. Right. And so so for some people it might seem like a jump.
0: So in Houston, Texas, some of the most prominent people in COVID are a hospitalist, Robin Armstrong, Mary Talley-Boden, Bowden, who is an ENT doctor, myself who treated eighteen hundred, Mary's treated about twenty two hundred. Um We have a person who's a pediatrician slash emergency room person who's treated like 10,000. And we have probably about, I don't know, 3,000 doctors who didn't treat any, which is why I'm treating. So it's, if people are not going to do anything um, and they're afraid because they don't want to, you know, lose their paycheck, um, that's a long story as to why that happened. It's a little bit of a shock. So the reluctant, Part of this is that I knew I had to do this because if I didn't, people were going to die unnecessarily. So I reluctantly started treating. First patient I treated was one of my best friends from medical school, and he called me March 10th. He said, "I know you've been looking at this, and I don't know, and I trust you, and, uh, I, and you know, I'm not going to the hospital because I'm I'm not go. I've already seen what's happening in, in overseas." And I treated him with steroids, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, vitamin D, and aspirin. And when I treated him with the steroids, he was like, Isn't this and this, you're going to treat him with steroids for this virus? I said, absolutely. And, and, and he said, are you sure? I said, you trust me, right? And he said, yes. I go, you're day eight. This virus is replication incompetent past the date five or six. He said, how do you know that? I go, I don't. It's a coronavirus. That's what they all do. Every coronavirus in the whole world lasts for about five or six days. This one is no different, okay? I know it's a coronavirus, and they're calling it novel, but that, I don't even know what that means. I don't even know where that term even came from. Every, they're going to have a new novel coronavirus a week from now because it's going to mutate a tiny bit. It's going to be novel also. They're all novel. The, every time you have a new pandemic or an epidemic, every single flu virus that we have every single year is novel from the one from the year before. So the novel's like, it's it's nonsense. Novel is nonsense. They're all novel. So first, get that out of your head. Second, know that respiratory disease in these viral illnesses is almost all inflammatory. It's not pneumonia, it's inflammatory. And I said, so there we go. And he was like, "All right, fine. Just give me the medicine." <laughs> so and he took it and was better quite quickly. And then at that point in time, once I saw it work for myself, his his family was sick too. Um, I knew I had to say something because people were being told to go home. I was being told to go home, and I said, "I'm not going home." So fascinating.
1: And so, well, you're you're basically being told, you know, don't work. No, they were telling me
0: that if I did work and I used PPE, if I used the mask that I might be criminally liable for wasting protective equipment in the middle of an emergency when it's that hard to get a hold of. I got a little scared from that language, so
1: I was like, I'll, I hesitated a little bit. So I just decided not to wear the mask. Let me get this straight. You were told that you, well, you were told you couldn't do your... I work, or you were told you couldn't do your COVID work or any work. So,
0: the original, th- what scared people so much at the beginning, because really it, my story is the same as everyone's. We all felt the same thing. You literally told us if you're not emergency personnel, you need to go home. So, some of us here decided we're not going home. We're going we're gonna to see patients. We could only see emergency patients. So, you know, a patient calls in with a floater or something like that, you know, you could see them. But I decided that I was going to do more than that. And If people had COVID, and I told my patients, if you have COVID, nobody is going to help you. I said, first go through the chain. If no one's going to help you, I'll help you. Call your regular doctor. Uh, if they're not, if no one's going to see you and they don't have a referral to someone else, and you're uh, you're going to not be seen by anybody, then call me and I'll help you. And you know, it ended up uh, 1,800 patients later. So, it, but all the doctors were afraid because. First of all, they didn't want to be in trouble and potentially lose their license because they stayed in business. Let's say you're an ENT doctor and somebody had wax in their ear. And that could wait, right? So you you can't see that patient. So those kind of patients were off limits. It could only be emergency personnel. And secondly, um, so that was scary. Like, should I stay in business and keep my doors open if I'm not doing an emergency? We decided to stay in business with our employees we had about 300 and so we have at the time we had 750 employees and we stayed in, in business with about half of them so we could keep the doors open which of course we were losing money because of that but we waited for the so our business went down to about fifteen percent of our business would be what we consider to be urgent right you have a bleed in the retina um, you have floaters um, your eye hurts it's got scratched it might be infection we don't know it just hurts real bad it's all red these kinds of things we kept our door open for and we also kept our door open for people who had macular degeneration. If they don't get their medicine, they're, they're going to go blind. So we, we, we get their medicine. So people were aware that we could do that, right? But the, the scariest thing was the whole thing about the mass and stuff. That was basically if you were it, you basically could be liable criminally. And that, uh, between all those mixed messages, a lot of people were like, I'm just going to take a week off, right, because it's only going to be two weeks. So what they said. So everybody kinda got in that, let me just take off. So I took zero days off because I just felt like I've never taken a day off. You know? You can't go to the bathroom, you don't have to eat, and you don't need to take a day off. And you can ask all my employees that what they say. There's no days off. You can't go to the bathroom and you can't eat. And of course then I smile and say, I'm you know, I'm just kidding. So but but seriously, um, that was scary. And we were we were we didn't know you know, how aggressive they were gonna be and how much was gonna come down the pike towards us. And uh, a lot of my my docs actually, that are partners of mine, actually uh, quite a few of them actually decided after it kept dragging out to start quitting. We lost over the course of COVID the first year. We had like, we had the biggest, like I said, the practice in the country at the time. And we went down to, lost like 22 doctors over that period of time. So they were just like, you know, we were losing money every month. Because there was no not as many patients to see, and they just decided, you know, I, I don't, I'm not comfortable, and and that that's what happened. And it happened here, but it happened everywhere.
1: I have heard anecdotally that a whole lot of doctors just stopped practicing yeah. over the course of the last two years, and so what does it look like right now? Do you have a sense of that?
0: Here in Texas, people feel it's been unbelievably busy because people feel like COVID might be over, so. Once the news media flipped over to Russia now, people are a lot less afraid. It's like the constant messaging uh, keeps people in fear. I mean, it really does work. Constant messaging works. So now that people are talking about Russia and Ukraine, not talking about
1: COVID so much, there's a
0: lot of people that kind of feel like, oh, I think I'll
1: go back to the doctor. But are are there actually less doctors now, or did the ones that quit come back, or what is no? They right. they did not come back. We hired we've hired like seven new doctors
0: all at a residency in our practice. So we're seeing like the young people are coming out, and you know we, we have business for them because people are coming back to the doctor for elective things now. So. Um, it's changed a lot it there was last year was actually reasonable because people felt safe when they got the vaccine I'm always happy to go down that rabbit hole also but it made people feel safe that they had their vaccine even though the triple negative were dying at the highest rate
1: right well I mean that but that really only came out somewhat recently right the, yeah the, the news the I mean, around most that. people have yeah. no
0: idea that if you if you and I were in a room with 10 people from the general public, all of them would be, like, shocked to hear that. Maybe one out of 100 might, might
1: know that. Let's take the opportunity to, to discuss this with the audience, then. What, tell me more about this. So, as we looked at the data going
0: forward, you know, uh, from the beginning of the pandemic, um, we had a hard time getting uncorrupted data. And you know, the CDC, uh, we still don't, aren't going to have data from Pfizer's trials, you know, for who knows how long, right? They're hiding a lot of the data, the data they do have. Wh- as we got data, we started finding things interesting. like, well, the bioavailability, what is the biodistribution of this product? This messenger RNA lipid nanoparticle? Well, guess what? it distributes everywhere. Um, this is something that I would have known quite readily because I work with lipid nanoparticles. I could have told you that lipid nanoparticles, I usually say, they need a door crack, whereas a virus needs an open door. So, And a normal vaccine needs an open door. So a normal vaccine stays in the arm pretty much, 99.9% or so, or 99%. A lipid nanoparticle needs a door crack to get out. A, a large majority of the lipid nanoparticle does not stay in the arm in fact we now know that a large part of it goes into the lymph node right underneath here and still making spike protein 60 days later that's a wonderful study from cell so this is something that that's called pharmacokinetics that should have been looked at well before this this product was out so they never told people that hey we're gonna stick it in your arm it's gonna show up in your lymph node it's gonna show up in your brain it's gonna show up in your ovaries your bone marrow your adrenal glands, your liver, and your spleen, which is then gonna track up through the vagus nerve and go to your basal ganglia. All these things are happening. Why do I know? Because the studies have been done now. They weren't done by Pfizer or Pfizer did them. They didn't tell anybody. So what I just told you was, it's not staying in the arm. It's producing spike for up to 60 days. The spike, as we know, is actually being found up to 15 months later in monocytes and other cells. It's not being degraded, all right? This is a big deal. People should know these things, right? It's blocking p53, the guardian of the genome. It's actually blocking microRNA27A, which is also upticks in, like, uh, colon cancer. It's, it's actually affecting many things that are going to increase cancer, as BRCA, the breast cancer gene, interferes with that. So these are things that should have been done ahead of time. Everything like the, I'm The studies
1: you, to look at to look at this. Right.
0: These yeah. studies are done. I'm not saying anything. These are not opinions. I don't. I'm not giving you any opinions. I'm just giving you data. So it goes everywhere. It's blocking important tumor repair genes called p53. Uh, it's blocking BRCA. It's also messing with microRNA 27a, which is caused upticks in colon cancer cells. It's causing production for up to 60 days. It's messing with toll like receptors 7 and 8, which you and I have pretty similar. It should be almost similar, to like receptor 7 and 8. They're part of our overall genome of everybody that's in this room. Um, those are uh, important for immune surveillance for viruses. So we're going to see this huge uptick in uh, all the viruses that lay kind of dormant in our body, like the herpes virus family. So in my clinic right now, I am seeing three to five people a week because they know that I am taking a lot of time in my practice to do COVID. And they're coming to see me with long COVID. And they're coming to see me with problems with after the vaccine. And these people are coming in and they're exhausted. They don't feel good. And what I'm finding is a huge number of them have reactivated Epstein-Barr, herpes simplex, herpes zoster, um, CMV. I've not had an interview with anyone where I've actually revealed that to any big audience. This is an incredibly important thing. Um, a lot of people are looking at this long COVID if it's all viral-related uh, problems, specifically to the spike protein or to other issues. They're not. They don't know that we're seeing this huge reactivation in the viral uh, herpes virus family, and uh, we we have treatment for it. It's been working really, really well. So these are things that uh, we need to get that word out. And I think uh, we are also seeing. 40% rise in deaths, as you know, from uh, 18 to 64. These are the actuaries. Nobody filled them in to tell them to not let that news out. And and from 25 to 44, we saw l- the last quarter, last year, an 82% rise in deaths. So there's a lot of data that's out there that is very, very troubling. And most people are unaware. And it's, it's our job to kind of let people know this platform this lipid nanoparticle messenger RNA platform, I don't care what you attach to it, it is always going to travel everywhere. It's always going to be a problem. And that's why you see the distribution of, of disorders coming from this after the vaccine affects so many different organ systems because it distributes everywhere. And so I heard somebody say, we don't know why it does all these things. Well, we know why because it's, it's a lipid nanoparticle. It goes everywhere. It—you know it's like, I tell people it's like garlic. So you know, this is not something that's controllable. And it doesn't matter if you're doing it for RSV. It doesn't matter if you're doing it for influenza. If you do a lipid nanoparticle platform, you're asking for trouble. You're asking
1: to have an uncontrolled distribution pattern. Yeah, and this is your drug designer hat. Now that's my drug about. designer hat. Yeah, exactly. Now, I just want to go back to what you said. So there's people coming to you every day with, you know, long COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're saying it's just it's common among these people to have these reactivated. Most viruses. of them
0: are are vaccine post vaccine triple, especially after the boosters. I started seeing a lot. I was seeing it early in the year, but not as much after the third third boosters. Now some are on the fourth boosters. We're seeing a tremendous uptick in the Epstein Barr. In the cytomegalovirus, herpes zoster, and herpes simplex viruses, some mycoplasma,
1: and just long COVID, and and you know this sort of you know vaccine effects is kind of similar symptoms. Absolutely, right? Yeah, I was trying. That's what I
0: was kind of getting to. Is that Mm -hmm. we are seeing that there's some unique differences in COVID and vaccine injury. The most unique one is the myocarditis. So, in a lot of this long COVID, um, you're going to see less neurologic, usually, than I'm seeing in the vaccine, because it's much easier for the, um, unless the patient was really sick, the blood-brain barrier is pretty protective against viruses. But it, it cannot keep out, like I said, a lipid nanoparticle only needs a door crack. It fits through tight junctions. The reason a whole virus can't get into the brain very easily is because the tight junctions are tight, and it, it, it needs an opening. If there's a lot of inflammation, it leaves openings. And the, the only place where you see a huge difference Uh, between the virus uh, and the uh, vaccine is in the myocarditis. We see massive differences in the amount of damage that you see. So overall, we're seeing a lot more severe injuries with the vaccine than we're seeing with the the long COVID. And a lot of these long COVIDs, as I said, and the vaccine are actually a constellation of symptoms that are best described as being viral disorders that are basically being reactivated.
1: Fascinating. So this is, I mean, there's kind of a massive area of research here that, that I guess, is, is it being kick-started on a broader scale? I mean, you're, you're seeing this through through actually treating people, right? So we've, we've decided that we need to kind of let people
0: know, like, hey, we want other doctors to know, hey, look for the viral reactivation, because uh, Bruce Patterson's also working on this, but he's not talking about this at all. It's, a, it's He's not in the clinic seeing patients, and so... Um, in general, um, he's getting sent patients and they maybe he's getting a, a different type of patient than I'm getting. I'm getting the general public being healthy enough to walk into my clinic to come see me. Some of them are pretty sick and staying at home and people are saying, hey, go see him. Um, but Bruce is probably getting people that are maybe even more sick and so his research is kind of, you know, his work is going in a different direction where he's he, his population is a little different. I'm seeing a lot of people that are going around with long COVID but half functioning but not completely dysfunctional and a lot of those are reactivated viral disorders from toll-like receptors 7 and 8 being being dis- disturbed.
1: Thank you all for joining myself and Dr. Urso for this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck. Coming up in part two. Basically they took almost the exact same drug as Calitra. dressed it up, they put a box around it and they're selling it for what 5 billion. Big pharmaceutical companies can make billions by essentially repackaging existing products, Dr. Urso says. We have seen the ultimate demise of our healthcare system when it's in the hands of bureaucrats, Dr. Urso says. He's now working with other prominent doctors to create both a national telehealth system as well as an entirely new infrastructure of doctor-led medicine where power is decentralized and less easily corrupted. Once
0: doctors became employees during this pandemic, it made them very reluctant
1: to speak out for various reasons. Dr. Erso is a drug design and treatment specialist, an ophthalmologist, and former chief of orbital oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Jan Jekielek. We live in an era of censorship and disinformation, and it can be really hard to know what's true, and what's false in this information climate. To get honest information and insights you can trust, join us on Epoch TV. You can sign up for your 14-day free trial at ept.ms slash freetrialjan. That's ept.ms slash freetrialjan.